there, security peeps. It's Brent Houston here. And I wanted to just take a couple of moments and talk a little bit about this version of the podcast. In this episode, I go ahead and I interview Jeff, also known as Egg, who is a former network technician for the Holocaust Museum, as well as many other pretty interesting things. So we get into a little discussion with Egg, and uh, I think we get a good tidbit and a good overview of some of the things that happen inside IT security around museums and those types of of areas. I do want to also add in this short form version of the podcast, just a quick couple of messages. I have a, a little bit of a call to action for everybody. I think I don't like to really talk about political issues or anything like that on the podcast. As you probably know, I'm not a very political person. But I do think that it is worth a call to action to the information security community to talk a little bit about the boards of election and some of the help that they can use. No matter where you stand on the political spectrum today, I think if you just look at the news, the history, the media, I think it becomes pretty clear that some type of hacking has been taking place against our political system and probably... There is a really great opportunity for folks in the InfoSec community to engage directly with their local boards of election. Now, for those of you who don't know much about the boards of election, they're typically a bipartisan group. They are local-based. You may have them in your county. You may have them in your state or province or commonwealth, depending on where you're from. Those localized board of elections, they organize and coordinate the various activities for all the types of elections of the public good. And I think they're really an organization that could benefit from greater contact with our information security community. The hacking and the threats that they've received are not all that different from those of a corporate organization. There's been a lot of basic education that's needed for these folks. Remember, these are not folks that are typically computer savvy. They're folks that in many cases and in many counties are receiving a small stipend or simply volunteering for their position. Some counties and some commonwealths and and states do not actually even have a full-time staff. So it might be something that you could look at. I think it's a good way for us to contribute to the good of the democracy and the good of our country overall. Now, a lot of the boards of elections uh, localized do have volunteer programs, not just for election day, but if you have a particular set of skills, for example, uh, cybersecurity, and you're willing to donate some time to help them out, many of them do take those kinds of contributions up to a certain level. So I would urge you to make contact with your local board of election and just kind of see if there are things that you can help out or contribute to them. I think it's a high value contribution that we could have. And I think ultimately everyone will benefit from it. So if you're looking for a way to get involved or if you're just kind of getting started in information security and you want a way to engage and really get out and do some good work and get some experience, certainly some of these local boards of elections are good ways to do that if they indeed in your area allow for volunteer work and contribution. So if by chance you don't have that capability in your area, another organization that that we as MSI have worked heavily with are the local food banks. 
These folks need quite a bit of information security assessments and best practices and policy and process improvement. And a lot of this is because the food banks spend a lot of their time raising money to support their food kitchens and their food distribution programs. And these are largely uh, charitable and volunteer organizations. So another great area, another great idea of, of ways to get involved in the community that benefits everyone and allows you to grow your skills and probably participate in some pretty cool InfoSec projects. So that's my call to action. Hopefully, uh, if you've got some spare time, you want to donate some of your cybersecurity skills, boards of election or the local food pantries would be a good way to do that. I get that question quite a bit, so thanks for indulging. Our second point today I just want to cover before we jump into the interview with Jeff is I wanted to thank Bill Semph and Josh Anderson for some of their recent contributions and discussions around different work projects that they are doing and uh, some of the research work. Um, They've been helping me with some feedback on different projects and, and really, really helping kind of motivate me to pull together more podcast content in specific areas. So hopefully we'll have them both back on the podcast again soon. I know everybody loves to talk with Bill and and, uh, Josh and, and their insights are definitely valuable, but just take this as a big thank you to them. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this tidbit episode. I think it's a really good interview with Jeff and I guess we're off to the races. Thanks. security peeps. It is Brent Houston again. Hey, I have the absolute awesome privilege of hanging out today with a guy that we call Egg. And uh, I'll introduce him here shortly and tell you a little bit about why we're hanging out and some of his background. But Egg's real name is? Jeffrey McClure. Jeffrey McClure. See, so I've known Egg a little while. He's worked for MSI for a little bit. But I'm going to make an introduction to Jeffrey because he's got some really cool background stuff in his past. And I think it's some stuff that you guys probably will dig. So that said, it's a beautiful day. We're hanging out here in the honorary Michael Radigan Studios. And we're just kind of chilling out. So, Egg, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Well, thanks for having me. No, we love you being here. And uh, I just want the listeners to hear a little bit about your background, because you have such a diverse background. Tell us a little bit, where does the story start before you got into IT even? Where'd you grow up? Oh, so I grew up in uh, Huntington, West Virginia. Wow, so really down along the southern uh, border of Ohio there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right across the river from Proctorville, Ohio. It's a little small, like maybe a two-red light town in Ohio. <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. And um, did you live there your whole life? Uh, mostly. Yeah, we moved back and forth around Huntington, but uh, primarily my parents stayed around the Huntington area. My mom owned a computer shop in there, so. Oh, nice. Uh, so you grew up kind of messing around with hardware. And- yeah, that's what I always joke. You know, when I was eight years old, most kids were out running around playing, you know, football or whatever. I was tearing hard drives and play some motherboards and computers. <laughs> Trying to help mom out. <laughs> now, my listeners know I'm highly caffeinated. I'm sitting here drinking some blueberry coffee. And I think you've got like a 55-gallon drum of uh, Dr. Pepper Dr. Pepper over there. <laughs> so we get a, speaking a little fast, guys, just uh, hang in there a little bit. So growing up, you got all access to all this hardware, and your mom runs this computer shop. Tell us what happens. When does it start to get interesting about an IT career? 
I was really interested in it at a young age, you know. I always try to find, like, I always, I guess my first little bit of IT work was, uh, you know, I had Nintendo when I was, like, probably eight or nine years old. And we had a TV that had the old, I can't remember what the connections were called, but you, you screwed it into the back. And then you, you screwed the Nintendo, the deal into it there. And we, we couldn't afford a, a new TV, so I had to figure out a way to make my Nintendo work through multiple devices to be able to play my game system. So that's where it really started at, was, uh, you know, just, just trying to figure a way out to make my game system work at that level. And then it kind of evolved, you know, with mom... Mom had a computer shop. Started getting interested more into computers, computer gaming. I guess gaming kind of involved me to be into the IT, IT field. Yeah, you know, I guess but really, I was probably about 16 or 17. I uh, got my first computer. Didn't have an operating system. So I had to do a lot more of the command line. It was like, it was an old school, like Windows 2.0, I think, or 3.0. Oh, wow, yeah. So I had to learn a little bit of the command line. So that was pretty cool. You know, I was kind of interested in that. Uh, then I kind of gave up on IT for a while until I went to the Army. So what would you do in the Army? Uh, U.S. Army, I assume, right? So yeah, the U.S. Yeah. Army. So when I was in the Army, well, I started out, you know, my mom told me to do something that I could do when I got out of the military. So I chose to do landmine warfare. I was a combat engineer for a while. A lot of, a lot of calls for that around the malls <laughs> and stuff. I think there's a lot of landmine yeah. stuff going on at the mall. You know, and then uh, I was in for 10 years. Probably my eighth year, we went to Afghanistan. And we needed our unit needed an information management officer, which was a uh, like a like a like a Fulberg colonel position. Basically, they did all the networking, uh, Blue Force tracker, any kind of hardware issues, software issues. I and mean, since I was the only guy that had a computer background, uh, they kind of throw me into that role. So it was you know supporting that unit there overseas for that time frame. Kind of felt that I could do this for a living. I thought I was, I was pretty good at it. You know, there seems to be like. Only any computer problems that I found during my time in the army that I couldn't figure out an issue or resolve the issue and move past it to something else, you know. So now it was around that time though that your really your love and interest moved from hardware, as you've told me the story in the past before we were recording, <laughs> and it really moved to networking, right? And that became the core focus of of it. Yeah, I was really interested. See, you know, hardware to me, you know, my thought process, especially you know, what is it, probably about eight nine years ago, was uh, hardware is a dying breed. You know, there's always going to be computers around, but eventually they're going to go away. And I just wanted to find something I wanted to do that would be uh, that'd be pretty cool. And thinking about you know networking to me was really neat. Uh, you know, how does a packet of data move from my computer? across the internet, uh, the world, to somebody else's computer in Russia or China. I was really interested in that. And then, so when you got out of the Army, what happened next? Did you go to work in networking? Uh, ironically, no. <laughs> <laughs> so my first job out of the Army, I used to go to power plants. I would go to, to power plants that would have these big smokestacks, and uh, I'd carry a box of ammonium nitrate and a shotgun in there. And I'd put the ammonium nitrate shots on the end of a broomstick, and I would blow the carbon fire, the carbon out of the smokestacks onto the ground. Uh, I did that for a few months. It was with steady work. Uh, yeah, I had a family, so I had to think about something else. So I moved from that to Boeing, <laughs> ironically. Before I decided to go to college, I decided, yeah, let's try the Boeing thing. So I built jets. I built the 787 Dreamliner. So I, think I built the first 14 or 15 of those. Then after that... I decided to go to school. So I went to school and did um, some work for Daimler Chrysler. I used to take their drive shafts and uh, I would balance their drive shafts. And then I would, uh, we would paint them and send them off. 
Nice. Uh, so while I was going to school during the evening, I would do that during the day. It was pretty pretty neat little job. So when did you end up in networking? I went to school for network security. Uh, I had an information security degree, but probably about halfway through my program, I was working for a company. It was uh, Alcoa. I was doing their help desk stuff. So uh, Alcoa, if you're not familiar, is like a uh, aluminum company. They build a lot of aluminum stuff. Really big place. But I went in there and I... Um, it replaced all their computers and stuff like that. And uh, they were in the middle of a, like a power contract, so they couldn't bring anybody in full time. So I was at the end of my contract. They couldn't extend me. I, had, I was blessed to have a boss that really liked me um, that knew a guy, which uh, worked for a company out of Charleston, South Carolina there. I don't know if I can mention him, so I won't. But he was looking for somebody to go to Washington, D.C. to be a network engineer. So uh gave me a great break. I was blessed. Still in school. I was still learning. But I was able to move, uh, transfer with my school. I, there was a campus there, actually. And uh, continuing my degree while I was working as a network engineer at the Holocaust Museum. So now for those of you guys, you just glossed over that. But that's right. You heard it right. You were the network administrator for the Holocaust Museum. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the Department of uh, Protection Services for the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. So um, I was their only network engineer. We had a couple guys. One guy did all the cameras. We supported quite a few cameras. I can't really say the number, but it's more than 300 and less than 1,000 cameras we supported for the four years I was there. Three. So describe the Holocaust Museum. So for those of the listeners maybe who've never been there, typical museum setup, right? There's artwork and, and materials, and those materials have to be protected and that happens over a pretty extensive physical security system, right? So basically anything that was important, most of the stuff like, uh, you know, we had bunk beds from Auschwitz to the uh, fence from Auschwitz was there also. We had some ovens uh, that was from some of the concentration camps. We kept, we had motion sensors. We had uh, alarms, cameras that would focus in on the, the, if anybody got close to the motion sensors, the camera would actually would move. And look at the person that was touching the the artifact. It was all watched by a control center that that monitored twenty four seven. So, in addition to that, you had displays, video displays that were on. I would assume. And so, how much of all of that stuff, when you look at a museum like the Holocaust Museum, how much of that stuff is really IP? Oh, every bit of it was. So, at least from the security side of it, we had sixty inch TVs that we used for a video wall, the Barco video wall. And then we had two 52-inch TVs on one wall, four 32-inch monitors on another wall. When I first got there, it was all analog uh, hookups. So you had all your IP cameras. They all went back analog to a uh, converter and converted it to, to digital. And that's how we displayed it with uh, Vigilant. Probably about halfway through, we started replacing all the analog cameras with IP-based cameras. That's yeah. so a lot of multicasting, removing all the analog, all the old... Uh, Low voltage power, running Cat5, Cat6 cable, all that good stuff. So in the end, almost all of the physical security and all the display stuff, all over IP. So right now, there's a lot of discussion around how much of the world, right, how much of the physical things that we interact with will be IP down the road. And you see that in the IoT market. You see it in the security market. But in your experience, these IP devices 
really became the core of everything, right? They're the core of the technology around the museum. Yeah, especially, you know, with the museum. And you wouldn't think it, but, you know, the Holocaust Museum was a huge target. I mean, there were so many crazy things that would happen there. Uh, anything from bomb threats. Uh, they had a shooting there. Kill, I'm sure you can you can Google it. It's probably about a year before I got there, but they had an officer that was gunned down in front of the museum. So it was a huge target. So it was I took that security very personal and tried to do the best we could there. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff like the Linnell, we had, we had the Linnell set up, 3,300 boards. That was all IP based. Uh, so the physical security, you know, cat card or access card, trying to get it to a location. We want to make sure it was secure. Try to keep all of our employees safe as possible. Now you actually changed the security infrastructure there, right? I think you, you mentioned that you switched from uh, Cisco to Juniper. Tell me about what that transition was like. So it's pretty interesting. Like most people that you know go to school in the last 20 years, the school shoved Cisco down my throat. That's all I ever learned was Cisco, Cisco, Cisco. When we got there, uh, it was a Cisco shop. It had some uh, some 4948E core switches, some, um, shoot, I can't think, 2960 closet switches, which is great. I mean, they're great switches, but the way they were configured was really improper. Um, we had a lot of problems security-wise. You know, a lot of stuff was wide open. They had some loops in their network that would cause some issues. So we decided to go to make it a change and go to a whole new network. And the plan at the time was to design a network, either whether it be Cisco, Juniper, we even talked to Brocade, a few other manufacturers. But we wanted to create a network kind of blind, on the blind side and get it up and running before we made the transition of all the security, because it was security stuff, uh, before we moved it, to move everything over to the new Juniper stuff. So, you know, being a Cisco guy at the time, I had no clue about Juniper. You know, I opened, unboxed my first 3300 and I was lost. So what, um, what was that transition? What did the curve look like? How long did it take you before you became what you would feel proficient? So actually, I was blessed. The great thing about I've been blessed with in my whole career is that I've been around people that have helped me that are really smart. I don't try to, you know, I listen to what the older people have to say. You know, I don't try to like I know everything because you can't know everything about IT. Um, so I was able, I was blessed to get with a great Juniper rep, uh, Ken Miller, smart guy. Uh, took me under his wing, helped me convert from Cisco to Juniper, and that helped me tremendously. The curve for me was probably about a month. So a 30 days, really, from out of the box, what is this thing to being able to configure it, know what was going on? Yeah, and it was probably expedient with the fact that we had some switches. We had some small business Cisco switches. I can't remember the model. It was like 300, maybe 300s. A funny story, when we got them, we got one, unboxed it, configured the thing. We put it in the rack, powered it on, got all the cables ran, you know, 48 ports, all cameras. Cameras wasn't working. Tried to SSH back into the switch. Nothing. Took the switch out of the rack, put it back on my desk, put the serial cable to it, powered it back on. It was wiped. So configured it again, committed it, had my buddy look at it. Everything looked good, just to make sure I wasn't losing my mind. We unplugged the thing, put it back in her rack, plugged everything back up, and it wasn't working again. Took it back out, put it back on the, on the uh, desk, you know, plugged it back in, serial connection, wiped again. Well, come to find out, well, that model of Cisco switch, you couldn't put a complex password in those switches. It would erase the switch. So at that point, we decided all the cards were off the table, and I was kind of pushed into instead of doing two separate networks and then moving stuff from one to the other, now I'm trying to introduce Juniper into the Cisco network that's already got some problems. 
<laughs> so complex passwords uh, really were were a problem, that, yeah. and uh, that was the undoing in your scenario. Yeah, you know, at that point in time, I decided that I didn't like Cisco. I was a Juniper guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool, man. So how long did the whole conversion take to switch to Juniper, and what kind of, uh, at the end, did it all work out for the Holocaust Museum? So, yeah, we went from, uh, we had five floors up. We had a lower level in the basement. We had two closets per floor. We had quite a few in the lower level in the basement. I don't remember, remember recall the, the amount uh, that we had there. And don't get um, too specific, right? Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. their current architecture, yeah, right? So yeah, we don't so. want to. We don't want to necessarily. There might be some listeners who might be inclined to poke at things. <laughs> I know that never happens with our listeners here at State of <laughs> Security, but let's just pretend that they might. Okay. So we'll we'll keep that a little abstracted. Okay. So we you know, you know, had a certain amount of switches out there. It took us probably approximately about six, seven months. At the time, you know, we were getting some bleed through with the cameras. At that time, I never really said, but, you know, I had, like most network engineers coming out, a lot of unicast stuff. I never really did any multicasting stuff until I got there. So learn, I had to learn multicasting, IGMP, IGMP snooping, and that there's two different, there are two different things. They're not the same thing. Um, right. So, you know, doing all that and trying to figure out multicasting. It took us about six months to get everything in, and it like doubled their network speed. I had a bug. My last, the guy that replaced me there, he wrote me approximately three and a half weeks ago and said he had to replace, he had to restart the course, which we called it Hulk. So he had to restart Hulk, and it was the first time he restarted it in over 800 days. That's awesome, man. That is is really cool. Now, it wasn't all foolproof, though, because you've told me before. You had a little problem even with maybe a guard booth, right? Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> a funny thing. My first uh, lesson was spanning tree, right? So we're sitting there in a control center. It's got some cameras out. At the time, we had, uh, it was a, I can't remember, it was like a 19, maybe 19 megapixel camera, which they probably changed it now. But it was an IP camera outside of the building, and that guy would zoom in. You could see a license plate for 20 blocks. Wow. I mean, it was an amazing camera. And it was severely pixelated. It was jacked up. Uh, you know, we lost basically half the network. And you know, we got to troubleshoot it, you know, trying to, try to figure out where our problem was. And it would go back to being normal. And uh, we thought, oh, okay, you know, maybe it was just a hiccup in the network. You know, it's we just introduced all these new Juniper stuff. Uh, you know, maybe stuff's just not playing well with the Cisco stuff. And it seemed like it went through it probably four or five times. It would do the same characteristics. Uh the cameras basically all on that side would, would get all staticky, pixelated. They would drop. We had a lot of flood of packets and stuff. It was a nightmare. And uh, come to find out, I had forgot to set the uh, lowest cost priority for the spanning tree on the little, I think it's like 2200 or something. It was a little tiny 12-port Juniper switch in a guard room. So what was happening was uh, the switch would decide that this was its uplink, and then it would just automatically say, you know what, I like this uplink better, and it would just change the two links. So it would just, <laughs> and when it would do that, it would mess everything up, and then it would go back. So after poking at that thing for three or four, shoot, probably more than, probably more like five weeks, we found out that it was a priority thing. And once I set that lowest cost priority, perfect, yeah, everything worked fine. So if there's a young network engineer out there who's listening, and they have these kind of complex problems going on in their environment. 
Can you give them a couple of like, what are the first two steps they should be thinking about? So if all that's going, if you're a new guy, especially a juniper guy, and you're putting in or some person, right? Yeah, person, or person, sorry, person. <laughs> uh, and you're going to put in some new switches. Uh, my first recommendation would be set your lowest cost price. Figure out what you're uplink. So you can do an link aggregate groups. That's perfectly fine. But set your low co- your lowest cost priority for every switch you put out there. Because that will, you don't think it'll come back to bite you, but it is, that will cause the most headaches you'll ever see. And it is it was so hard to troubleshoot because it, it was so many different characteristics that could possibly have been, you know. So that would be my recommendation is to, is to learn the cost priorities and figure out what's your path. Your most valid path and set that. So that's really awesome. And I think it's cool that you did such great work at the Holocaust Museum. And it's obviously one of those really cool places to work. I've heard you kind of talk about it. If my listeners haven't been to the Holocaust Museum, where is it? What is the thing to see if they go out? What's like the technical marvel that they should pay attention to? The whole city itself to me was was fascinating. There's so many cameras there, you know, and just, just realizing how it all works together. You know, I, got, I was blessed to be able to see the inside of, uh, so you look at a building and it's got 40 cameras. What's actually going on inside that building? You know, what is people actually watching that camera? Or is it just getting recorded? Or, you know, what's the recordation time like? I would definitely recommend the Holocaust Museum. The problem with the museums, like most museums, is that every year they change their setup. So I really don't know what they have now, but it's a great museum to go see. The tickets are free. It's right there. It's right, if you look at the Washington Monument, it's literally a block away from it. So it's not hard to find. It's right beside the Mint and right across the road from the USDA. So that's Um, awesome. And we really appreciate you hanging out with us. And thanks for telling the stories and sharing some of your insights and I know we're going to hear more from you uh, down the road about just how some of this uh, physical security stuff is colliding and what uh, you think the network stuff's going to look like. For those of you who don't know, Egg has come aboard at MSI working with us and, and will be around the podcast a little bit more often. So that was very cool. So, Egg, before we kind of wrap up here, we're going on about 25 minutes Tell me a little bit, what's your ask? What's the thing that my listeners should take away and be aware of the bottom line from your point of view? If you could take anything away from what we talked about today, it would be my personal opinion is listen to everybody. You know, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there I was blessed to be a part of. And some of those people, I would have never thought that they knew the information that they knew. Tremendous help in new networking just because you, you're at a job and it's a, it's a dead end job or it's a, it's a job that's not really going anywhere and you're about to lose your job. There's always somebody out there that knows somebody. All you need is that one big break, you know. I think that's the key to well, at least what I was talking about here is that and don't do certifications. No matter what everybody tells you, <laughs> that's a waste of money and it's garbage. <laughs> Nobody cares about certifications. That's awesome. Thank you so much for hanging out. If the listeners want to engage with you, where can they find you? So my Twitter is egg, E-G-G underscore MSI. And uh, I have a blog. It's called uh, Stuff I've Learned in My Nerd Journey. Um, I've got a link on my Twitter account. I've also got a LinkedIn. It's Jeffrey McClure. Awesome. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And uh, thanks for spending the time. I mean, it's a lovely day. We should both be outside. But we were here recording for you guys because we wanted really to just talk about the Holocaust Museum and Jeff's experience there. So thanks for sharing, dude. We really appreciate it. Thanks.
We'll see you soon. And my listeners, this segment will be a part of the podcast uh, set that's coming up. This will be just one piece of content. As always, though, as we close up here, thanks for listening to this segment. We'll see you soon. So thanks for listening to this episode of the State of Security podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I think it was a pretty good one. And before you uh, take off and head back into your firewall logs, I just wanted to take a moment and remind everyone that the end of summer before you head off to Hacker Boot Camp or out to a Hacker Summer Camp in Vegas for Black Hat and DEF CON, please feel free to drop by stateofsecurity.com, give us a read. And if you'd like to contribute any reviews of Black Hat or DEF CON or quick write-ups of, of items that you see out there and your thoughts on them for the blog or for the podcast, just drop me a line. I'd be happy to talk with you. If you'd like to be on the podcast or if you've got some an interesting story to tell around information security or information technology, always happy to hear from listeners and decide to pull together a couple of shows. They don't have to be long-form interviews. They can be short-form. Just let us know. And thanks again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of stateofsecurity.com, and I'll see you again soon. Until next time, stay safe out there. <music>